Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Thursday. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk for the 18th of January 2024. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and it offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the Chinese economy expanded 5.2% year on year in the fourth quarter of 2023, faster than 4%. 0.9% year-on-year growth in Q3 and slightly below economists' forecasts of 5.3%. Fourth quarter GDP was 1% higher than in the third quarter. And for the full year of 2023, the economy also grew by 5.2%. That exceeds the official government target of around 5% and is picking up from a 3% rise in 2022. China's population decline accelerated in 2023 as deaths rose and births fell for the second year in a row. China's overall population fell by 2.08 million in 2023 to 1.4097 billion. Births declined by 5.6% to just over 9 million in 2023, but the birth rate was outstripped by 11 million deaths and demographers forecast further falls as the population rapidly ages. China's property sector, which has been mired in a debt crisis for three years, continued to suffer in 2023, the official statistics showed on Wednesday. Investment in property development fell 9.6% year-on-year last year, compared with a year earlier, and accelerating its descent after a 9.1% fall across the first nine months of 2023. And China's new home prices dropped by 0.4% year-on-year in December, faster than a 0.2% fall in the prior month. It was the six straight months of declines in home prices and the steepest pace since March. The European Central Bank is likely to cut rates in the summer, its President Christine Lagarde said on Wednesday, disappointing markets that had been anticipating a first rate cut in March. She added that policymakers should have enough wage data by late spring to decide if Eurozone inflation will keep falling. She said inflation is not where the ECB wants it to be, but she was confident the central bank will get inflation to the 2% target. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manu Life Investments. We're also going to talk about Asia's frontier markets with Rushir Desai of Asia Frontier Capital. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Global stocks and bond markets retreated on Wednesday as investors scaled back expectations of swift interest rate cuts in the Eurozone, the UK and the US. The S&P 500 slid 0.6% to close at 4,739. The Dow declined 94 points, that's a third of a percent, to close at 37,267 in the third straight day of losses. And the Nasdaq Composite lost 0.6%, ending the session at 14,856. Ten-year Treasury yields climbed to a five-week high after U.S. retail sales rose more than expected in December. The ten-year yield climbed four basis points to 4.11%. Yields on rates-sensitive two-year Treasuries rose 13 basis points to 4.36%. 
The US dollar index was unchanged at 103.38 after edging up to a one-month high of 103.5 earlier on Wednesday. The dollar rose 0.7% against the yen to 148.19. The offshore yuan depreciated past 7.22 per US dollar, sinking to its weakest level in nearly two months as the greenback rallied. Spot gold traded 1.1% lower at a one-month low of $2,005 an ounce. Brent crude oil fell half a percent to $77.88 a barrel, recovering from earlier losses of almost 2%. And Chinese equities plunged following the data release from the mainland. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index slumped 589 points, that's 3.7%, to an almost 15-month low of 15,277. Every sector was in the red, and the city's benchmark index is down now 10.4% since the start of 2024, and has lost more than half its value since its most recent peak in February 2021. It was dragged lower Wednesday by the Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index, which fell 5.4% to an all-time low following the release of official housing price data for December. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index, that shed 3.9%, recording its worst day since October 2022 and taking its declines to 11% so far in 2024. That makes it the worst performing major benchmark globally this year and follows four straight years of declines. The tech index plunged 5%, taking its fall so far this year to 16.1%. On the mainland, the CSI 300 index of the largest Shanghai and Shenzhen listed stocks fell 2.2% to a five-year low of 3,229 and taking the 2024 decline to almost 60%. Futures markets pointing to a small rebound for Hong Kong stocks at the open of about 90 points in the Hang Seng Index. That's 0.6%. The index projected to open at 15,370. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's been a busy day for economic data and a chaotic day in the market. So much to talk about. Let's welcome our regular Thursday morning guest, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. And also with us is Mark Franklin, who's Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions and Manu Life Investment Management in Hong Kong. Happy New Year to you, Mark. Good morning, Peter. Let's start with some of that China data. Let's first of all talk about the GDP uh, data. The Chinese economy had expanded 5.2% year on year in the fourth quarter of 2023. That's faster than the 4.9% growth in the third quarter, slightly below economists' forecasts of 5.3%. The quarter-on-quarter growth rates were slower uh, than 1.5% recorded in the third quarter, which was revised upwards. And on a yearly basis for the full year, the economy grew by 5.2% as well. That exceeds the official target of around 5%. And it also picks up from a 3% rise in 2022 amid various support measures from Beijing and also a low base comparison uh, from the prior year. Mark, let's get your thoughts on the the GDP data, first of all. Uh, Beat the official target of 5% um, anyway, but uh, I suspect if you dig deep into the numbers, uh, there's a few worrying signs, aren't there, going forward? 
Yes, I think for both domestic and external political consumption, the GDP number was also going always going to come in acceptable. Uh, and and a slight beat also tries to convey the sense that the the the, the path ahead is 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 a solid one for the China economy. But as you said, under the hoods, retail sales closed the year somewhat weaker than expected. Um, and that's in spite of the fact that at the margin anyway, both monetary and, and fiscal policy support is starting to crank up. Um, you know, the economy is now fully reopened post-COVID, but there's still a bit of a scar tissue effect for households and businesses who suffered during COVID in terms of depletion of savings, but also a lack of clarity and confidence about the, the future outlook. And as a result, you know, spending decisions are somewhat more modest than they might have been otherwise. And the other point to make as well is that the real estate sector still struggles along a little bit. We're still seeing price degrowth month over month. And given the proportion of household wealth that's tied up in real estate assets, that uh, has an impact on, on a sense of well-being and therefore consumer confidence. And of course, also, you have to take into account that that growth is is real growth, isn't it? So if you strip out deflation, um, then you're looking at maybe nominal growth of what around about uh, four, four point two percent. That's correct. I mean, certainly, certainly on the on the PPI side, we we've been experiencing a period of of, of deflation. And on the consumer side, um, inflation is, is very modest. Uh, and, and, and one of the reasons for that, to be fair, though, is that in, in Chinese CPI, food prices are quite an elevated weighting relative to Western economies, and in particular, pork and pork-related pricing. And there, there's been an excess of supply on the market for some time. And so that, that's been a, a, you know, a certain esoteric factor for China. But stripping that aside, yes, uh, China's economy is, is closer to disinflation territory rather than uh, strong inflationary territory. Andrew, what are your thoughts if you dig into this data? That is, I will be looking for the quality of, uh, of the growth rather the actual absolute numbers. And Mark has already pointed and put number of my favorite 70 major Chinese cities index of property continues now to be falling for nearly 21 continuous months, falling. So in other words, also overall uh, investment expenditure on the property side also goes down. Okay. And in summary, it is the quality of the growth that matters as opposed to the absolute and well, no, that's the property sector, okay, which is still in deflation. That uh, I don't think it gives light to it. I don't think that the Chinese in any way cooked their numbers. All right, but the five point two percent, it's very good. But uh, then when you look at uh, you know the the <laughs> devil is in the details, basically. How much do we need to take account the the base effects that we're comparing to a year ago? I mean, I've heard some economists say that you really need to take uh, maybe 2% off to, to account for that. So that means you're only going to get growth of about 3.2%. Is, is that, do you think that's a, a realistic assumption? Right. It, it always is. But then uh, uh, real GDP also depends <laughs> not only just on the gross GDP deflator, but also depends on the components of the gross GDP deflator. So right. you are right, but I would prefer rather than confuse my clients, because they are confused enough listening to me, particularly when my broadband breaks down, uh, Peter, rather than uh, do the, the real aspect thing, is to simply point out that in addition to all this, we are having deflation in a number of sectors, and in particular in uh, the CPI numbers, which are effectively consistently below one, mm. and sometimes even below zero. Okay, And now this must, might have nothing to do with the GDP growth, but it points out that something is 
not going well as far as the consumption sector is concerned. Mark, Mark, how much do we need to take into account the the base effect um, here? And and what does that mean for for growth going forward into 2024? Well, I think that if I remember correctly, Q4 GDP growth in 2022 was also pretty strong as well, in spite of people saying that given given the sort of the immediate aftermath of COVID, they would have expected to be much lower. So I don't think there is a base effect at play here because the base effect was, was strong uh, this time last year. Uh, rolling ahead into 2024, you would expect the, the conditions in, in China to be somewhat better than in 2023. Uh, and, a, and a couple of reasons for that is um, that the government has announced an expanded fiscal deficit projection for 2024 versus 2023, something in the order of 3%, maybe slightly higher than that. So that's showing that they're willing to loosen the purse strings somewhat, although there still is a need to secure the financing of local governments, uh, and in particular, rollover debt and the extension of, of, of uh, loans, which enables infrastructure projects to be completed as well. So 2024 should be relatively secure for China because they've indicated that they will start to apply fiscal stimulus to the economy on a relative basis to last year. And let me ask you both about the population decline. China's overall population fell by 2.08 million last year. It now stands at 1.4097 billion. Births declined uh, by just over 9 million, but that was outstripped by 11 million deaths. Demographers are forecasting further falls as the population rapidly ages. How big a problem um, is this? And in particular to President Xi Jinping's target of really trying to get per per income capita um, up, the problem is um, before people get richer, they've now got to support um, a rapidly aging population. I would have thought that this is going to be a problem. May I jump in, uh, Peter? Can you hear me all right now? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, well, there, there, are, there are two. One is a very facile answer to that, and that is as the number of people in China falls and uh, GDP growth continues to be high, then the per capita income is going to increase, which is, I'm sorry, it's a very gruesome way of saying, well, there is a, there is a a small benefit into a decline in population with an expanding economy. The second point, however, is if you have a pear-shaped population, in other words, you are having more and more okay, people moving away from the pear shape to a, to a much more uh, inflated triangle, a lot more people are uh, aging. The question is, is the impact of that on labor productivity and GDP growth via the labor component? And my God, we have been hearing this for Japan for nearly the last 100 years, and it hasn't done any significant mm-hmm. damage to the Japanese economy. So I want to take this with a huge pinch of salt, okay, of saying that as people get wealthier, they have fewer babies, and that's the way it goes. And in general, uh, productivity can increase even with a rapidly declining population, and that is through technological progress, a more open economy, greater competition. So the demographics are very interesting, but uh, I will simply look at the door and say, say, next, please. Mm. Mark, what are are your thoughts about this decline um, in the population and um, its impact um, on the economy overall? The only thing I would add is that it's it's technically disinflationary for the domestic economy. So as we know, China has excess productive capacity domestically, which is why it exports so much of it. And if the population is declining, there are fewer domestic consumers to to soak that up. Uh, And therefore, structurally, China's uh, inflation path over the next 10 years will be lower than its path of the previous 10 years. And I think that's already reflected in the, 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 the domestic bond market, both in absolute yield terms, but also the shape of the curve. 
Mm, and, and presumably it is going to impact um, the, the, the target to try and get um, people wealthier to get their per capita income up and get it higher. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, to, to Andrew's point, um, there, there's a quantity and there's a quality effect as well. Um, ultimately, if you look at the, it, much like the West, but perhaps not as not as extreme, um, wealth is effectively um, in the sort of the middle upper classes and, and middle aged and above, um, and, and therefore <clears throat> that's not going to go away. The big the biggest challenge um, actually China faces in the shorter term is is youth unemployment and uh, finding enough jobs for for new graduates uh, to enter the workforce. Um, not that this is by design, but obviously as as uh, as birth rates fall, then there are fewer in uh, d demanding new jobs in in a, in a few years time. But ultimately, they are the engine room of of future economic productive growth. So there are unintended benefits as well as uh, you know challenges that come as a result of these demographic shifts. Now, what is interesting there on youth unemployment is the National Bureau of Statistics has resumed the release of youth unemployment data. They suspended it um, in June when it reached a record peak of twenty one point three percent. They've now started publishing it again, and they say the unemployment rate for the population aged 16 to 24 fell to 14.9%. Now, the problem is that's that's been narrowed down to exclude students. So we can't really mark, can we compare this to the number in June so easily? But um, we need to see some uh, several months, I suppose, of historic data here. It would have been quite useful if the MBS had published maybe some, some back data on this. But nevertheless, what do you make of this figure? It's still still high, isn't it? Yes, I and mean, I think they took their time to work out how to uh, restart the series in a way which was attracting less negative attention, certainly uh, from an international perspective, perhaps if not domestically. I'd link it back to um, the issue of demographics, because if younger people in China feel that their prospects are uncertain, then they're much less likely to start families and also make big investments, uh, such as buying a house and buying a car as well. So if you fix the youth employment situation and get the jobs market going again, that will have knock-on benefits elsewhere. Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? The overall unemployment rate, it did inch up again to 5.1% in December. It was 5% the previous three months. And as we just said, the youth unemployment rate now restarted the data 14.9%. What's your thoughts? Yeah, my, my concern in, with Chinese unemployment rates was not that they are cooked or they are recalibrated in order to, to be better, but based on the unemployment rates on urban uh, situation. In other words, I'm looking at the relatives. In other words, if you tell me it's 14 high, and I will tell you in relationship, let's say, to domestic unemployment rates of anything between 2 to 4%, yes, it is very high. But the relativity always goes back to saying, are the domestic, sorry, are they um, urban unemployment rates appropriate, particularly if you have a very large amount of transient population of domestic immigrant population, which are not counted. So in other words, there is still quite a lot to be done on uh, what is the true unemployment rate in China. And of course, that leaves in all probability a huge chunks of the Chinese economy, and that is the agricultural sector, which cannot be simply uh, denied or, or pushed on the side. So I have uh, much more metaphysical issues here, as opposed to saying, yes, 14 is high or 14 is uh, 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 too low, and it is uh, suspicious, I would say. Put it in the context of what is available as far as Chinese unemployment rates are concerned, and uh, then what has to play with the relativities, and that makes the comparison, the comparison before and after the release of the numbers quite tricky. 
Okay. Now the other standouts. I spend too much time on that. Okay. Sorry, Andrew. The, the other standout in the data. Uh, was the property data, as we've seen for the past few months, almost anything related to property has been pretty disastrous. Uh, the property sector, uh, from the official statistics, investment in property development fell 9.6% year on year last year. So that's accelerating now from a 9.5% decline uh, the, the prev- in the previous uh, period. Residential property sales, they were down 6% uh, year on year, um, increasing from minus 4.3%. China's new home prices, they dropped by 0.4% year on year. I think, Mark, however we look at it, um, the property sector is a big problem, isn't it? Doesn't matter whether you look at investments, whether you look at home prices or or sales. Uh, the data still seems to be worsening. Yeah, there's a reset that's required in terms of property prices in China for simple reasons that the supply demand picture is significantly out of balance. Supply, uh, you've had um, excessive production completion volumes over the years, demand is now much softer. And so what they need to do is find a way to secure the supply side, make it more rational, which means some consolidation of the sector, allowing very marginal developers to to disappear and larger strategically important developers if they're undergoing financial uh, duress secure them. And on the demand side, that's going to take you know a, a few more years to get back to where we were, if at all, given, as we've talked about, demographic issues, a loss of confidence, um, ec- economic conditions elsewhere that affect as well. So we would expect that, that property prices would continue to grind lower for the foreseeable future. What they're attempting to do is effectively manage that path and make it somewhat gradual rather than creating a shock effect like we saw during the housing uh, bubble burst in the US in, in, the, in the late 2000s. So I think China's very keen to avoid that type of situation, but they're just trying to effectively extend that period of correction over a longer period of time so it appears more gradual rather than sudden and, and shocking. Andrew, what are your thoughts? This is where a lot of Chinese wealth is held, of course, isn't it? So um, what are your thoughts on uh, the decline in the property sector, the ongoing decline into three years now? Yeah, for me, uh, I will take two completely opposite points, and they all draw a line, and they all converge at a single point that I want to raise. And that is, does that help to explain uh, when the vice premier pre-announced the data and also said, we're not going to spend we're not going to spend our way out of this. Now, because there's going to be no huge fiscal incentives or fiscal initiatives. Effectively, he was saying, we're not going to use money to clear our balances because anything that goes to, uh, let's say, support the property sector, it has to involve cleaning balances. It, it has nothing to do with uh, making it cheaper for people to buy their homes uh, or reducing the prices of bricks so it is cheaper to produce houses. It has money has to go out to clean balances. And rightly, the Chinese uh, government is not keen to see this happening again. Hence, the property sector okay, is taking out a kind of a second uh, line, in uh, second, second baseline on, uh, on what uh, they're suggesting or not suggesting they're about to do it. And hence, potentially, our obsessive concern about this should perhaps be toned down for two very simple reasons. Uh, the three major banks in China are state banks, so they cannot go bankrupt. China has still got a colossal elbow room into its fiscal deficit. So if something was to genuinely begin to upset them, they could spend their way out of this. And then, uh, as Mark pointed out, we may have to live with 
falling property prices huh. for a few more years," said he casually. <laughs> okay, so I, you know, I, 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 I decide, uh, Sorry, I rather agree with that, uh, with that, uh, with that uh, approach. This, this trajectory of the property sector. Um. Mark, how much should we be concerned about debt um, here? It was interesting that Premier Lee Chang was saying this wasn't done by increasing stimulus and taking short-term risks. But nevertheless, you know, total social um, financing rose 16%, uh, 16 percentage points last year. Um, didn't get an awful lot of GDP growth for that, did we? Yeah, the, the credit multiplier has been progressively declining in China for years and years and years. And I think it's because the old economic model effectively using debt um, at the local government level to build infrastructure means that you know the more infrastructure you build, the less marginal utility it has for economic and productive growth. Um, coming back to the point around debt sustainability, I think that China's approach has been to have um, extended levels of debt whether it's in absolute or multiple terms, in parts of the economy and parts of the system where there's less visibility, certainly from a, from a global economic perspective. And, and at the central level, that the federal balance sheet in China is somewhat more pristine, and, and that's what they care most about, certainly from, a, from, a, from an optics point of view. So that hasn't changed very much, and there's still at the margin a lack of willingness to um, absorb uh, some of the excessive debt levels at the local government level, the provincial level, back onto the central balance sheet. They want to keep that strong, clean, and so on. Um, so systemically, it's becoming more and more skewed and more and more stretched. But if you look at the federal central government, government balance sheets, it looks much less problematic. And, and this is partly an optics game at play here. Andrew, I know you don't like talking about debt to GDP ratios, but but nevertheless, it, it does rather put uh, pay to the to, to the sort of the the, the, the lie that um, China isn't doing much stimulus. They have done quite a lot of stimulus, haven't they? Well, yes, and possibly uh, in the wrong sectors and possibly for the wrong reasons. And uh, that's why uh, Chinese policymakers, policymaking and makers, it was, it was always a, a, a study in cautiousness, okay? Because they they realized they overdid it during the year 08 in order to boost up the financial sector of the economy whilst everybody else was uh, was on fire. And then uh, I don't think they learned their lesson. It, end, it ended up that this was perhaps the wrong way to approach it. And then they got stuck with that. Because, of course, that simply produced uh, uh, more buildings and more building activity backed with debt. And uh, now we are, collectively, we are paying the price. So uh, I'll have to say yes, and not just because uh, you are, you're the main host of this program, uh, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about me. <laughs> um, Mark, let me switch, switch attention to um, the, the markets. Um, emerging markets obviously don't tend to do too well when uh, rate cut expectations are, are dissipating as, as they are at the moment. But nevertheless, Chinese equities, Hong Kong equities um, doing far, far worse than um, what emerging markets are doing overall, aren't they? Yes. Um, one of the things that I would sort of caution at is the precipitous drop in equities that we've seen year to date, people saying that is in any way linked to um, a perception of how the fundamentals are shifting. I don't think much has changed from a, from a fundamental perspective in Hong Kong or China in the last four weeks. What you're seeing, we think, is an ongoing persistent uh, de-risking and reallocation away from Hong Kong, China towards other markets by 
global asset allocators and regional investors, um, perhaps um, in anticipation of uh, further issues around um, sanctions and entities going on lists of of non-investment by the US government, as an example, but also investment committees from a risk management point of view, instructing their managers to reduce allocations. And there's obviously been a lot of money that's got into Hong Kong, China over the last 15 or 20 years, MSCI inclusion, uh, lots of IPOs. And so there's money coming out on a persistent basis. And therefore, it doesn't make much sense to frame this from a fundamental point of view, either in terms of how the economy looks, but also in terms of what valuations look like. They were cheap six months ago. They've got cheaper still. This is a case of um, you know a structural shift in investor appetite outside of Hong Kong, China for, for those types of assets. Are you seeing any signs that that structural shift is over and, and signs of capitu- capitulation here? No. Mm. So you, you're, you wouldn't be tempted to look at this and say, well, you know, valuations are looking very compelling. Um, this is a time to, to really be stepping in. You're, you're not tempted? First of all, it depends on what your time horizon is. If your time horizon is shorter than six months, we would basically say, uh, just wait until the evidence, both in terms of price action and, and the change of the narrative is, is more concrete. Um, longer term, than that, the thing to watch for is not valuations and saying we're at trough valuations. It's more to say, is the narrative shifting? Has there been a sea change in uh, the China government's um, approach towards the private sector, um, its, its policy towards, for example, um, fair competition? Uh, and and therefore um, a, a, a warming up of of overseas investors' appetites to, to re-engage with 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 Chinese businesses and to reinvest again, that would be the turning point. Not whether the PE multiple had got to four down from five, for example. Andrew, what are your thoughts about the the sharp declines here that have continued from the end of last year into the into the beginning of this year? Obviously, the property in uh, sector um, dragging a lot of the market lower. The mainland properties index at an all time low, but nevertheless, whole range of, of companies are, are being thrown out uh, of the bathwater with the baby. Metuan, Xiaomi, Alibaba, Tencent. What do you make of this, and what's behind it? Well, I'll tell you what I make of this. I you know, I'm going to sound like an economist. I apologize, Mark. I agree with 50% of what you said, and then I disagree with the other 50%. And the other 50% is if there is this risking, this risking, can someone explain to me why Taiwan ended the year, ended the year as the best Asian market, best, possibly one of the best markets in the world with 27% in US dollar terms. And my God, Taiwan is very much part of the China play. If they are de-risking out of uh, China and Hong Kong, why the hell they were, on they were piling money into Taiwan? I have been now following, of course, very carefully what has happened since the elections, whether something like that may or may not continue. But uh, I don't quite buy the story, okay, that uh, it is just about China and it is not also a peak, a fit of peakness that uh, the investors and their advisors just don't get the Fed right. And we just saw a glazing, beautiful proof that sings happily in my ears that they just done it again. Mm. In other words, you know, we have industrial output and retail sales in the United States and bang, everybody sold off. Why? Well, they are not going to cut interest rates anyway soon, said he whippingly. Okay, well, we have been saying this in the last year. Get it right. You can't outguess the Fed. Get a life and do something else. 
<laughs> okay, well, well Mark, um, let, let me ask you about where the alternatives are. If we look at the Bank of America uh, Fund Managers Survey, the, the latest one for this month, uh, they found that, foreign, that investors have cut uh, the amount of money set aside uh, for Chinese equities by 12 percentage points. It's the lowest net underweight now in more than a year. And Japan and India uh, seem to be uh, the main beneficiaries. The uh, Japan was the most popular market in the region, more than a quarter of respondents anticipating their double-digit returns in the next 12 months. I mean, this is part of the issue, isn't it? There are alternatives now um, to China. Uh, this goes back to my point about um, money being taken out of China and being invested elsewhere. So if you're a regional Asian investor, either ex-Japan or including Japan, and you have been instructed and you've decided to structurally reduce your allocation to China, you've got to find other markets to, uh, to invest in within the region if that's your mandate. And that's why, for example, Taiwan was partly a beneficiary. But I agree there's a certain cognitive dissonance there with Andrew that ultimately, you, if, you're, if you're concerned about China, and by the way, that also encompasses geopolitical policy, um, that then does, does Taiwan stand to be immune from that? No, not necessarily. But coming back to India and Japan, I mean, for different reasons, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Japan has had a bit of an epiphany, perhaps under pressure from activist, in, activist investors, to start to come across on a bottoms-up basis, a bit more shareholder-friendly, a bit better corporate governance in terms of cross-shareholdings, utilization of balance sheet and so on. So there are bottom-up reasons why Japan has faring quite well. And top-down, Japan is starting to become a bit of a favorite as a, as a destination for FDI, marginal FDI flows, which are not going to China and instead going elsewhere. And coming back to Taiwan, actually, one of the markets that, that TSMC has been exploring to diversify its footprint has been Japan in terms of semiconductor fab. So there's been a top-down shift in capital flows towards Japan. Bottom-up corporates are becoming much better engaged with activist shareholders. And in addition to that as well, you've got ultra-loose monetary policy. So you've got a high degree of stimulus in Japan on a relative basis of other economies are tightening. As for India, I think the story is as it has always been, combined with one additional factor. So as it has always been, the secular growth story from demographics, um, from uh, nominal growth, from from strong loan growth, under penetration of banking, et cetera, et cetera, that continues afoot. And then the thing which has got stronger and become an additional uh, drive of people's investor appetite is the fact that you've had political continuity. So Prime Minister Modi admittedly has his critics, but from um, a consistency from um, a um, welcoming approach towards foreign investment, um, he has been a mainstay and, in, and investors, institutional investors, like that continuity, like that certainty and visibility. Andrew, what could be the catalyst that, that reverses this trend and, and starts to get foreign investors interested in um, the Chinese markets once again and money flowing back in? Unfortunately, and pathetically, unfortunately, and this sounds completely, completely silly, is for the Fed to finally cut interest rates so we can concentrate on something else. <laughs> okay, and yes. possibly with the European Union. Okay, I, I, I must admit, I sound both impatient and intolerant, but grown-up people just not learning for one year now and getting upset about one bit of statistics goes up, it's good, for cuts, one bit of statistics come down, is bad for cuts, and the market simply fall it. Ah, come on. So yes, it's as simple as that. I would love for the Fed to say we are cutting on Monday, and that's it. And then we can get on with other things in life. Mark, final word to you. What, what could be the catalyst that could reverse those trends that you've been talking about there? 
Well, I think Andrew's right in, in that China has found it extremely difficult to operate within this ultra-tight monetary policy cycle by the US Fed. There's, a, there's been a shortage of dollars as well, which has forced them to effectively uh, sell treasuries to, to, to raise dollars. Um, so it would help at the margin, but I go back to the point around a more um, investor-friendly policy mix. So there's been a domestic political shift towards a model of centralization rather than uh, empowering businesses uh, in the private sector to invest and to, and to innovate. And in addition to that as well, there's been some mixed signaling around regulatory policy. So one example in recent times would be the, the gaming, the online gaming sector. So the, the chief policy architect for gaming policy a few weeks ago announced some draconian measures there. Then he was promptly dismissed after a very aggressive negative share price reaction. And those those policy measures were, were diluted away. And so that, that creates an uncertainty element. So certainty, a slightly more pro-private sector stance and a softer tone in terms of China's engagement with the international community. All of those factors would definitely help. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. Plenty going on. That was Mark Franklin, who is Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investment Management in Hong Kong, and Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I'm joined now by Rushir Desai, who is Fund Manager at Asia Frontier Capital. Morning, Rushir. Good morning, Peter. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So we've talked a few times last year about uh, the Asia Frontier markets. Now that we've reached the end of the year, how was the overall performance? Well, actually, Asian Frontier markets had a, had a fantastic year in 2023. Uh, pretty much all our major markets outperformed obviously global markets, but also more importantly, Asian emerging markets, which kind of underperformed last year. So for example, broadly speaking, we had strong performance from markets like uh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, and to some extent Vietnam. But the standout was obviously uh, Iraq, which is in the Middle East, which was, I think the index was up almost 100% in US dollar terms. So it had a very strong year across the board for all our Asian frontier markets. And the key driver, for, the key drivers, in my view, were the fact that many central banks in our universe already began cutting interest rates uh, in 2023. So we saw aggressive interest rate cuts from Sri Lanka, from Vietnam, from Kazakhstan as well. And broadly, the economy's bottomed out at the end of 2022, and we had discount valuations. So overall, I think all these factors put together led to very strong performance from our markets last year. And you mentioned the Iraq fund up almost 100%. Was that expected? I mean, how much has that contributed to the outperformance overall of frontier markets? Yeah, the Iraq index was up 100%, about 97%. And the our Iraq fund was up actually 110% in US dollar terms. And that obviously played an important role in the performance of our AFC Asia Frontier Fund. Uh, but up, so I would say about 45% of the returns last year came from our Iraq fund because exposure to Iraq is is via the Iraq fund. But that's only that's only part of the story because the other half, or almost more than the other half, came from other markets like Kazakhstan, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, and Georgia. So it's pretty broad-based uh, performance across the board. It wasn't just one country or one a uh, few companies which drove performance. So that's that's what's very important and very uh, very good to know that you know we, we had performance across the board in our markets last year. So what's the outlook for this year? The outlook for this year, I'm still positive going into 2020, 2024, even though you know performance for our fund and also for Asian frontier markets were very strong last year. But I think there are a few key points which will help drive performance or help drive momentum even going forward. So I think one is you have, I think, central banks in our universe, because they raised interest rates so aggressively in 2022, 
they still have a lot of room to cut interest rates in 2024 because inflation is coming off quite significantly across our markets. And more importantly, I think this is helped or supported by the U.S. Fed. I would say not just the U.S. Fed, but global central banks moving to a less hawkish policy. Now, I don't know when the U.S. Fed will cut. Maybe, I mean, just overnight markets were expecting that the, the Fed may not cut in March, but probably later in the year. So it could be in March, June, maybe second half. But broadly speaking, the big picture is that global central bank policies are moving to a less hawkish tone, which I believe is very positive for frontier markets in general, because that was the key headwind in 2022. And second is, you have a very strong earnings recovery in 2024 because last year was kind of soft for earnings, especially in markets like Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Vietnam. So you'll see those earnings coming off from a low base this year. That's going to support the recovery as well. And more importantly, valuation is still very discounted. So I think, you know, for example, our AFC Asia Fund Fund trades at its all-time low P ratio of about 6.8 times, despite a strong mm-hmm. performance last year. And markets in our universe traded, you know, for example, Pakistan trades at a P of 4.5 times, Sri Lanka about 7.5 times, and even Vietnam uh, on a forward multiple is about, about 10 times. So despite a strong performance, valuation is very attractive. So you have two two key, very important tailwinds like lower interest rates and earnings recovery, which will help these valuations needed for this. So I'm quite positive given all these important factors coming together. I mean, we we know that emerging markets are, are, are sensitive to US interest rates. Is that even more the case for frontier uh, markets? Are they even more sensitive to, to interest rates maybe than uh, emerging markets in general? Well, I think you just take a step back and put in perspective what happened in 2022 with the US Fed being so aggressive. That was that happened alongside the war in Ukraine. So you had high commodity prices, uh, you know, high inflation, high food costs for many of these countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, which are you know net food and fuel importers. Plus they had some macro imbalances and also in 2022. So they, they were hit with not just an aggressive Fed, but also their own macro imbalances. So they had to raise interest rates very aggressively in 2022. But now with broadly their macroeconomic position stabilizing and the US Fed getting you know less hawkish, I think it's going to be very positive for our markets. Mm. So yes, in, in general, I would say for our markets, especially, I think this will be very positive from our investor sentiment perspective. Now, we had a lot of uh, economic data out of China um, yesterday. What What is the impact of the China slowdown on frontier markets in Asia? And are there any markets maybe among that uh, portfolio that maybe are, are, are less impacted by the slowdown in China? Well, I mean, the Chinese throwdown has been happening for the last few years, especially over the last probably 18 months or so. But it's not really had an impact on our markets, as you can see, the performance or last year, very strong across the markets and also for the fund. So I think many of our markets are driven more by domestic investors and domestic sentiment, not so much by foreign capital and especially not Chinese capital uh, or, or Chinese uh, investors in, in equity markets in our, in our universe. So it's a very domestic driven story. And also, if China still continues here in 2024, I don't see a big impact on most of the universe. For example, many of our countries, especially in South Asia, like Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, they're not very trade-dependent anyway. For example, mm-hmm. exports as percent of GDP is less than 15% as a percent of GDP for all these countries. So not very trade-dependent, uh, despite what happens, say, for example, Suran in China or Suran in the US, the relative impact on these countries will be less. Uh, but of course, Vietnam is very export-dependent. Uh, not just you know, the, China is the biggest trading partner, uh, and ex- and the US is the biggest export market. Uh, so yeah, say for example, global trade does see a, a continued softness in 2024. Uh, that could be a risk for Vietnam's export recovery this year as well. But having said that, 
Vietnam is the key beneficiary in Asia from the global supply chain shift. So mm-hmm. you've seen a massive influx of foreign direct investments coming into the manufacturing sector in Vietnam because many companies are moving their operations from mainland China and other parts of the region into Vietnam. So I'm not so concerned about the long-term growth for exports. Plus, Vietnam has access to many free trade agreements. So yeah, maybe the next six months will be soft. But if I take a three to five year view, I think Vietnam will be a key beneficiary of the sole global supply chain shift. And is Vietnam, is that likely to get upgraded to emerging market states? In, in the near term? Well, for, for, for emerging markets status, I mean, uh, most investors, global investors look at the MSCI indexes. Uh, and right now, Vietnam is in the MSCI Frontier Markets Index. Uh, but Vietnam has to change certain factors, certain things like, for example, allowing foreigners to buy certain stocks which are fully foreign-owned and some other technical issues which they need to resolve. Uh, which I don't see happening in the near term. Mm. So from a just from a Vietnam getting upgraded to the MSCI Emerging Market Index, I think that'll take some time. I don't have a timeline, but I don't see it happening in the next in this year for sure. Okay, another markets. Uh, let me ask you about the uh, the South Asian markets, in particular Sri Lanka. I mean, that was in the the news a lot last year, wasn't it, because of its economic crisis and its debt problems. Has it managed to dig itself out of that hole now? Yes, I think Sri Lanka had a very tough time in 2022, you know, with high inflation, high interest rates, with the social issues and the political unrest that they had, uh, you know, especially in the middle of 2022. Uh, but in my view, Sri Lanka bottomed out at the at the end of 2022, beginning of 2023. And in fact, we started buying some stock in Sri Lanka at the start of 2023 because we believe valuations have bottomed out. But broadly, from a macroeconomic perspective, they've seen a very strong recovery in certain in very important areas for example tourism was a key contributor to foreign exchange revenues uh, pre pandemic and pre crisis and that's come back very strongly so for example in 2023 they achieved almost 1.5 million tourist arrivals which is almost back to what 70% of pre pandemic numbers which is about 2 billion dollars of foreign reserve, foreign, foreign uh, exchange revenues and their worker remittances which had really dipped a lot in 2022 they've come back to about 6 billion dollars so very strong recovery for very two important drivers of their foreign exchange reserves which have come back very strongly, and I think the trend will continue going forward as well. And they should be get they should be able to get back to uh, the full recovery for tourism and also remittances by end of two thousand twenty four. But broadly, uh, on the foreign on the on the on the external side, that's really helped them a lot. But also domestically, for example, they've they've got the IMF program in place. They've done all the tough reforms over the last probably twelve months. Uh, They've also got the domestic debt restructuring carried out uh, for the local banks. And so they're almost through. They just, have, they just have to complete their external debt restructuring with the sovereign debt holders. That's almost done, I would say, probably next couple of months. Mm-hmm. So in fact, they've crossed the hurdle and now they are, they are, I would say, they're in a good position to you know go back to uh, their historical trend growth, so about 4 to 5% GDP growth. And what about those other two South Asian markets, Pakistan and Bangladesh? How are they looking? Well, actually, Pakistan is a pretty interesting story. So despite what's happening uh, despite all the negative news flow in Pakistan over the last probably 18 odd months with, with you know political crisis, the economic crisis and high inflation, etc. Uh, Pakistan between June 2023 and December 23, in the second half of 23, they were the best performing uh, market globally in US dollar term. It's a very strong recovery. Uh, and that's, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is obviously, uh, like many other markets, investors expect, all local investors expect that inflation, interest rates will start coming down from 2024 because inflation has peaked out. Uh, and secondly, of course, more importantly, also the IMF program is in place for Pakistan uh, and they would most likely sign a new IMF, IMF program in March or April of uh, this year. Uh, and third point is investors expect greater political stability going forward because the elections are coming up uh, uh, at the beginning of next month. 
and that would probably you know bring back policy making and you know a business friendly government so investors really appreciate that and the market is so cheap and you know like i said the p multiple for pakistan's four and a half times hmm. and it's the lowest multiple since probably 2009 after the global financial crisis so i think uh, it's still long i would say pakistan is a market which can still outperform in 2024 and coming to bangladesh i think over there also some some important developments have happened the elections just took place i would say about 10 days ago uh, so the obviously the previous government has come back to power and that again will probably bring some momentum back into policy making some better you know sentiment business sentiment should see an improvement uh, so i'm quite po- uh, quite positive for bangladesh especially in going going into second half of 2024 because this will have to do some macro adjustments in terms of currency and interest rates uh, given the macro headwinds they faced last year but be, but beyond looking beyond you know first half of 2024 i think bangladesh also can start recovering going forward as well how do you invest in these markets how do you find um investable stocks investable instruments because there's not a lot of them around are there actually that's a bit, bit of a misconception about frontier markets that they're not liquid or there are too many companies frontier markets actually especially asian frontier markets the larger ones are quite liquid compared to some of the other frontier markets say in africa or latin america or eastern europe for example vietnam's daily turnover is uh, you know at the peak was about a billion dollars a day now it's about 7 to 800 million dollars a day that's very large it's higher than even the philippines uh, or singapore and even you know countries like pakistan bangladesh sri lanka the volumes are still pretty healthy despite uh, you know the misconception that they're not really liquid they they may they may not be as liquid as say in india or china but uh, they're more liquid than the other frontier markets like i mentioned and and as i mentioned domestic investor sentiment is improving so liquidity has seen a significant improvement over the last 6 or 9 months and just from a and just from a stock selection perspective there are quite a few listed companies especially blue chip companies uh, which one can invest in for example vietnam has across three exchanges about 1000 listings uh pakistan has about 300 listings same for bangladesh and probably 200 listings for sri lanka uh from there of course we have a we we cut we you know we we uh, select certain stocks based on 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 our criterias but for example at any point in time uh we 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 could easily look at uh this from investor universe perspective we could easily look at across all these four markets mm-hmm. about 100 about 100 names so uh it's a, it's a, there's a large universe out there So hearing you speak in in summary I mean it's looking very good isn't it for for this year for pretty well any um, Asian frontier market they they're all looking pretty attractive and pretty compelling Yeah I would say they're looking quite compelling and like I mentioned I think the valuations are still very attractive uh, most markets in the universe uh, trade at 10 times or less you have the key you know very important headwinds which are which are becoming tailwinds now in terms of lower interest rates lower inflation plus you have earnings recovery uh, and more importantly i think you have global central bank policies moving to a less hawkish stance so i think that's going to help investor sentiment in domestic markets as well and that could possibly lead to a lot of foreign inflows coming back into these markets and that could really drive the market even further in 2024 well rushi thank you very much for telling us about that thank you for having me that's rushi desai who is fund manager at asia frontier capital you're listening to peter lewis's money talk money Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities and Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA, and with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO of Staten Partners. Have a great day. Money Talk.